0: Scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, verses 17 to 22. You can find that on page 977 in your pew Bible. And he, Jesus, came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then... This is God's word. And let's pray together. Gracious God, as we open your word this Christmas morning, we want to hear from you. And so we pray that your spirit would be with us in a special way to give us insight into who you are, into what you're saying, to show us your glory, your worthiness, your beauty, your truth. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts that are ready to be changed by your gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning, many of you uh, no doubt started the day by opening a few presents from under the tree. Uh, Some of you might do this after church instead, and so you're therefore praying for a mercifully short sermon. It's like the first amen I've got in, uh, <laughs> that tells you something. <laughs> I'll try not to disappoint. <laughs> but today, whether this morning or later on, today will be marked for many of us by that gift-giving and receiving ritual. Uh, It's a Christmas tradition that goes back at least until the mid-1800s or something. Tomorrow, however, some of those gifts that we spent so much money on and so much time trying to track down or that we were so excited to receive will remain in the box or be placed on a shelf relatively unused and rarely to be used again having been overshadowed by more exciting gifts, right? But several days or weeks from now, those more exciting gifts will undergo the same fate. The newness of our possessions fades. The magic of Christmas wears off. Many of the gifts that we have given or received end up going unused. Now, of course, we're all told that Christmas is not about the gifts, And that it's far better to give than to receive, and that is true. Christmas is about the incarnation of Christ. It's the celebration of God coming down to be with us, to dwell with his people in a special way. The Son of God taking on human flesh. Absolutely amazing that he might be with us and rule us and redeem us as our Savior and King. Last week we talked about how Jesus is the true temple. He is the fullness of God and bodily form, the display of God's glory on earth. It's not about the gift, it's about him. But what if I told you that there is a sense in which Christmas is all about gifts, and in that sense that it's actually better to receive than to give? That is if we are talking about the legacy of Christ's incarnation today, how God dwells with his people and displays his glory on earth today. God came down at Christmas to be with us, but Christ ascended back into heaven after his death and resurrection. And so how does God dwell with us today? Where do we go to meet with Him? How do we access Him that we might know Him and and worship Him? Where do we see His glory on display today? What we're going to see in our passage this morning is that Jesus, the true temple, fills His church with the Holy Spirit, making us a new temple and giving us gifts, spiritual gifts, that we might display the glory of God on earth. Jesus, the true temple, fills his church with his spirit, making us a new temple and giving us gifts that we might display God's glory on earth. In that sense, Christmas is about the gifts, just not the ones that we give. It's the ones that Christ gives to us that we might be built up into a dwelling place, a holy temple in the Lord. Those are the gifts that matter. The question is whether we will use those gifts or leave them in the box. The past few weeks we've been talking about this idea of God dwelling with his people. We've been talking about the temple, what it means for God to take up residence with his people in a special way to display his glory among them. Uh, We've seen how the Garden of Eden was like that first temple where God walked with his people and where he made Adam and Eve to be his priests, that all of life would be an act of worship to him. Uh, We saw later how he gave Israel what we called the old temple, uh, the tabernacle in the wilderness, and then the building that Solomon built, where God filled it with his glorious presence, where Israel's worship was centered, where God was with his people in a special way. We saw how God later, uh, how God's glory later departed from that building, that vision in Ezekiel where Israel forfeited God's presence among them because of their idolatry and sin. And then last week we saw how all of God's promises, all of God's plan to dwell with his people were fulfilled in a climactic way through the incarnation of Christ. God came down to be with us. John one fourteen, And the Word became flesh and dwelt or tabernacled among us, and we have seen His glory. The glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is that true temple through whom God dwells with us and displays his glory among us. But, according to the New Testament, after Christ's ascension, after he went back to heaven, after his death and resurrection, Jesus, the true temple, filled his people with the Holy Spirit, making his church a new temple for God. Not the building, but the people. That's what we see in Acts 2 on Pentecost. The church is filled with the Holy Spirit, resulting in worship. That's temple imagery. That's what God did when His glorious presence took up residence in the tabernacle and in the temple. He was, it was filled with His Spirit, with his spirit uh, resulting in Israel's worship. In fact, the church is often called, very explicitly, a temple in the New Testament. Not just the individual Christian, but the gathered body, the whole body of Christ. And we see that in places like 1 Corinthians 3 and 2 Corinthians 6 and 1 Peter 4. And, of course, in our passage this morning in Ephesians, Paul uses the imagery of God's temple throughout this letter to the Ephesians to describe both the church's identity and mission as the people of God. When he talks about the church being filled with all the fullness of him who fills all in all, 122, or being filled with all the fullness of God in 319, or attaining to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ in 413, that's temple imagery, being filled with God's presence. The house of God being filled with His glorious presence. When Paul talks about uh, the church being built into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit in two twenty-two, or when he prays that that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith in three seventeen, or when he comes right out and just says we are growing into a holy temple in the Lord in two twenty-one, that's temple language. This is a dominant metaphor that Paul uses to describe who we are and what we're to be about as the people of God in Christ. And our passage this morning, 217 to 22, is the most uh, stark uh, and, and clear description of that. And so if you're not still there, I encourage you uh, to turn in your Bibles again to Ephesians 2 uh, 17 to 22. And there are three things that I want us to see. And consider in this passage as it relates to our identity and mission as God's new temple. The dwelling place of God on earth today. Number one, that our identity as God's temple is based on the reconciling work of Christ. Number two, our mission as God's temple is to display the glory of God. And number three, our growth as God's temple is nurtured through the gifts that God has given us. So we'll look at each of these, starting with number one, our identity as God's temple is based on the reconciling work of Christ. One of the challenges that the early church faced uh, was how to navigate the fact that God's people were no longer uniquely jewish so the early church jesus and his disciples they were all jews and then after uh, a few years and and decades all of a sudden the church was not uniquely jewish it included both jews and gentiles or non-jews people of non-jewish descent up to that point in god's story uh, the story of god had long been synonymous with the story of ancient israel they were god's chosen people His treasured possession, uh, the people with whom he made a special covenant that he would be their God and they would be his people, the people whom he chose to dwell with in a special way through the temple, and the stipulations of their covenant were laid out in Israel's law, which was given by God himself through Moses at Mount Sinai. The Israelites lived differently, they ate differently, they dressed differently, Because they were different. God was with them. They were unique. But now in Christ, you have a whole lot of non-Jewish people attaching themselves to the Jewish Messiah. That was a category breaker for the early church. How can you be a follower of God if you're not a descendant of Abraham? Or if you don't keep the law, how can you claim to love God while ignoring the traditions and the commands? So much of what had for so long distinguished Israel as God's people didn't seem to matter anymore, and that created a fair amount of confusion and conflict in the early church as they tried to sort out this new dynamic. Shedding light on that new situation is one of the main reasons Paul wrote this letter to the Ephesians. And his answer to that dilemma of what do we do with this new now Jew and Gentile body of, of believers shedding light on his answer to that dilemma was to point both Jews and Gentiles to the reconciling work of Christ that was his answer of how to how to sort it out how it all makes sense and he explains in in 2 11 through 22 how Jews and Gentiles have been brought together into one body in Christ to become this new temple and he begins that section by reminding the Gentiles Just how far off they were before Christ. How how separate they had been. 2.11. Therefore remember at that time you Gentiles in the flesh. Called the uncircumcision. By what is called the circumcision. Which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. Alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. Strangers to the covenants of promise. Having no hope and without God in the world. It is hard to put the bleakness of separation from God and His people in any starker terms. This is a bad situation. And that was what was true of the Gentiles, uh, of those who were not part of Israel. But now in Christ, something has changed. Verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus... You who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he, Jesus, he himself is our peace, who has made us both Jew and Gentile one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself One new man. So no longer this division between Jew and Gentile, but one new man, one new humanity, a new Adam. In place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both, Jew and Gentile, to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Jesus takes Jew and Gentile, makes them one in himself, and reconciles them to God. That is a category breaker for the early church. This is a this is huge for them, that, that God would fulfill his promises to Israel by removing the distinction between Gentiles and Jews, or rather by redefining Israel around Christ, who is true Israel. That was revolutionary. It was, to use Paul's words, a mystery. Chapter 3, a mystery which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. The mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel, through the good news, the message of Christ. The gospel is for everyone. For Jew and Gentile, male and female, rich and poor, religious and non religious, young and old, Hispanic, black, Asian, Arab, and white. The gospel is for everyone. When you think about it in, in, in the climate that we're living in today, our world is so divided over so many of these things. Where is there a peace that's strong enough and deep enough to bring a healing that can actually last and repair the brokenness of this world, the brokenness among people, the brokenness between us and God? Where do you find a peace that strong and deep? Chapter 2, verse 17. And Jesus came and preached... Peace to those, to you who are far off, and peace to those who are near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Jesus brings that kind of peace. He brings peace because he's taken upon himself everything that's wrong with this broken world, everything that we do to contribute to the brokenness, our sin against God, our sin against each other. He's taken that on himself and bore it in our place and offered his own perfect righteous life as an offering to God for us that we might be accepted. He gives us all of the credit for his righteous life and he takes all of the blame for our sin. It's a pretty good deal. That is what Christ has done in order to reconcile us to God and to one another. He's killed the hostility. He has killed the hostility between sinners and a holy God and the hostility among sinful people. He unites all believers in one body. We, in him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. We're one family, one body, one temple in the Lord. That's the reconciling power of Christ. And that's the basis of our identity as God's new temple. Notice when he gets into the passage that he calls us the temple and describes it in verse 19. Notice how that starts with a so then or a consequently. It's on the basis of what I just got done saying that you are this temple. We become a dwelling place for God by the Spirit not because of something we have done Not because we've finally kept God's law well enough or finally cleaned up our lives enough to be acceptable. Not because we've attained some new level of enlightenment or found our zen or anything like that. We become a new temple for God through faith in Christ. Who kept the law for us and cleans us up by his blood who is the light, and who needs no Zen to do it. Our identity as God's new temple is based on the reconciling work of Christ. That's the first thing we need to see. Number two, our mission as God's temple is to display the glory of God. Another consistent theme throughout Ephesians is that the goal of our salvation, the whole point is to display the glory of God, to make known his worthy reputation. In the opening hymn in chapter 1, when Paul is praising God for this incredible saving work, he says three times in that hymn that the whole point of our salvation is, quote, to the praise of God's glory, to the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glorious grace. Chapters 1, 6, 12, and 14. In chapter 2, verse 10, he describes the church as God's workmanship. So it's like, you know, if you've ever been into a carpenter's shop where they've built something they're really proud of, they're showing you their workmanship. That's what we are. We are God's workmanship, a trophy of his grace, which is displayed when we walk in the good works he's prepared for us in advance. In chapter 3, verse 10, he, Paul describes God's plan to display his manifold wisdom, his, his unsearchable wisdom to the cosmic powers through the church. It's through the church he's going to show the heavenly forces how incredibly wise he is. In chapter 3, verse through Paul prays that God would receive glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. And it's the same purpose of displaying God's glory, of showing his majesty and beauty and and perfection, that same purpose that stands behind Paul's description of the church as God's new temple. Remember that a temple is all about the presence of, And glory of God. It's where you would see God's manifold glory being displayed on earth. That's our purpose. That's our aim. And so on the basis of Christ's reconciling work, Paul says to the Gentile believers in verse 19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, the dwelling place of God, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Paul tells us in no uncertain terms that the church is God's new temple. Both Jew, Gentile, not the building, the people. We are the new temple in Christ. The whole church, not just Westgate, the whole church. All who name the name of Christ in true faith. The legacy of Christ's incarnating presence on earth endures today Through his church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. In Christ, we're a people in whom God dwells and through whom he displays his glory. We are worshipers by nature, by identity, by vocation. We are worshipers who depend on and delight in God's presence and who draw attention to God's greatness. It's what we do. So what does that look like, practically speaking? Well, first, it means that worshiping God in Christ is not about going to a special place, a building. We are that special place, the people. Wherever we gather, wherever we go, God is with us to make himself known, to extend his mercy, and to display his glory. So it's not about a location, it's about a people. Second, it means that whatever we do, whether we're gathering together under God's word and song and prayer like we're doing right now, or whether we link arms and go out into the world to serve the Lord, to show his love in both word and deed, that whatever we're doing, it's not ultimately about us, it's about God and his glory. That's the point, that's the purpose. We are to be a display of his glory, his mercy, his love and righteousness, his holiness, his grace, his forgiveness, his justice and peace. The way God's plan, God's plan, the way that the world comes to know who God is and what he's like today is through the witness of the church. That's God's plan. That's his plan A. In both word and deed, that's our mission as his new temple. That we might fill the earth with the glory of God as his faithful representatives. Now there will come a day when Christ returns. That the whole earth will finally be filled with the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. We long for that day when, when the entire new earth will be God's temple. Revelation 21 talks about how there is no building No temple building in that new creation because God's presence and our presence now are in the exact same place. You don't need a temple, an intersection point, when we have the unmediated presence of God. The whole earth becomes his new temple. The whole earth is filled with his glory. That's where the story's going. But until the Lord returns, the church is the visible display of God's glory on earth. There's a problem with that, isn't there? We don't always look or act like God. We do not perfectly reflect God's glory, do we? We're not perfect. We're just a bunch of redeemed sinners who still mess up. In fact, it's often the behavior of the church... That turns people off from God today. So we have a problem. We have this mission. But we don't always do a great job with it. That doesn't change the mission. Nor does it change our identity. It does mean that we need to be changed continually. By God's grace through his spirit. To look and live more and more like Christ. Paul knows that, and he talks about it in chapter 4, which brings us to the third point. Our growth as God's temple is nurtured through the gifts God has given each of us. Our growth, becoming who we're supposed to be, our growth as God's temple is nurtured through the gifts that God has given each of us. We have an identity and a mission To be the people in whom God dwells and through whom he displays his glory. But we have not arrived. Thankfully, God's not done with us. And to strengthen our unity and our maturity in the faith, Paul says in chapter 4, verse 7, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. And then Paul quotes... This seemingly obscure passage from Psalm 68. In fact, he appears to misquote it. Uh, The psalm is a celebration of God's victorious presence among his people. And and the part that he's quoting is describing how this special presence of God that was formerly located on Mount Sinai where God gave Israel uh, his covenant That that special presence of God has now moved into the temple in Jerusalem. The victorious king has taken up residence in his home among his people. And in order to dwell there, he has received gifts from among men. Contributions that Israel makes for the building of God's temple. When Paul quotes the psalm though, he reverses the direction of the gift giving. Instead of God receiving gifts from men in order to dwell there, Paul has God giving the gifts to men. And people have debated for ages what in the world was Paul doing? Misquoting scripture. I mean, did he just misread it? Did he is he playing fast and loose with the text making it say something it doesn't say? Paul knows exactly what he's doing. He is applying Psalm 68 To the new temple in Christ. And this new temple requires a new kind of gift. Not the gifts that we give God for the construction of a building. But the gifts that Christ gives us for the building up of his body. And that's what Paul goes on to describe in verses 11 through 16. And he, Christ, gave The apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers. Those are his gifts to equip the saints for the work of ministry for the building up of the body of Christ, the body which is his temple. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Jesus, the true temple fills His church with His Spirit, making us a new temple and giving us spiritual gifts that we might display the glory of God on earth. In this sense, Christmas, God's desire to dwell with His people and display His glory, is all about gifts. It's just not the ones that we give each other. Not even the gifts that we give God. The gifts that we receive From God, through Christ, in the Spirit, for the building up of his temple. Which means we all have a role to play in showing the world what God is like. Nobody gets to sit the sideline. We are all gifted in some way by Christ. God gives a short list, or Paul gives a short list here in verse 11. Uh, It's not an exhaustive list. Uh, You can read Romans 12 or 1 Corinthians 12 or... 1 Peter 4, to learn about some of the other gifts that God gives. But, But the point is, our growth in spiritual maturity, our growth as a temple for God, is nurtured through the gifts that God has given each one of us. Some of us are gifted in evangelism, sharing the good news of Christ. Some of us are gifted in mercy, coming alongside others in need. Some are gifted in service, others in teaching and preaching, others in leadership. There are lots of different gifts. The question is are we using those gifts to build up the body, or are we leaving them in the box? And using our spiritual gifts doesn't just mean doing the thing I'm gifted in. Uh, It also means training others to do the thing I'm gifted in, using my gift to teach others. Being gifted in evangelism is not just about sharing the gospel. It's about helping others learn how to share the gospel. Paul says he gave the evangelists to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. The gifts are not just to be used, but to, to be used to be training others we build up the body to become in practice what's true of us in position. That we are display a display of God's glory, the, the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And so, how have you been gifted for the service of Christ's church? For the health and growth of the body? And how are you using that gift to make much of Christ, to display to the world The beauty and justice and righteousness and grace of God. Some of us may need help understanding what that is. um, Identifying the way God's gifted us. And if that's you, I would love to talk and help you think through that. Um, But here are a couple questions that, that you could be thinking about. First, what are you passionate about? What are you passionate about? What is it that burdens your heart? When you think about the life and ministry of the church, what kind of opportunities do you find yourself gravitating toward? What kind of things do you wish other people would do more of in the church because it's so important to you? That might have something to do with the way God's gifted you, the fact that you care so much about those things. What are you passionate about? Second, what are you good at? What are you good at? What abilities or skills has God given to you when it comes to serving his church and its mission? And and it's not just what you think you're good at, but what do others in the church tell you you're good at as well? Sometimes we think we're good at something, and Lord bless us, we really need to redirect our, our efforts somewhere else. Sometimes we don't think we're good at something, and everybody else is saying, man, God has really equipped you to do this. So we need to listen to one another in the body as we discern those gifts that we might be using them for the building up of the body of Christ to be a display of God's glory on this earth. So we'd love to help you discern that because what's at stake is the health and maturity of the church and the display of God's glory. That's what we're ultimately talking about. The legacy of Christ's incarnation What we celebrate at Christmas, God being with us to display His glory, that legacy endures today through Christ's church. Jesus, the true temple, fills His church with His Spirit, making us a new temple and giving us spiritual gifts that we might display the glory of God. And so may may we make the most of the gifts that we've received building up the body of Christ to the glory of the Father. May that be our our prayer and our response this Christmas. Let's pray. Gracious Father, thank you that you have chosen what really looks like a foolish plan to the world and even often to us, that you would use a people like us to display your glory and change the world. Lord no one. Would have planned that but you. But that's because no one but you. Has the power and grace to make it happen. And by using a people like us. It becomes unmistakable who gets the credit. Not us. But you. And so we praise you for your mercy. and That you are pleased to dwell with us. That you are pleased to sanctify us, to equip us, to use us in Christ as one body. Lord, may we live according to the truth of who we are. And may we do it together today. In Jesus' name.